This episode of Dear Asian Americans is brought to you by Koba Coffee. Koba stands for coffee bar. It is caffeine in a chocolate bar, so you can get caffeinated, stay awake and alert, and focus on what you're doing without the need to go buy a cup of coffee or brew a cup of coffee. You can learn more at koba.coffee and put in code DAA or podcast to get your 15% off your first order. And we want to thank Peter and the rest of the Koba team for being a supporter of the Eurasian Americans. Hey, everybody, it's Jerry here. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this. We hope that you are staying healthy, safe, and happy, especially if you are on the West Coast. Uh, here in California, the skies are a little gray, and we've all seen the pictures of the, uh, the Oregon skies, the San Francisco skies, and want you to stay safe. Uh, the air is not very healthy, so we encourage you to stay indoors, uh, wear your mask, even if you're outside by yourself. An extra reason to wear your masks and to keep everybody healthy. On today's episode 74, I talked to my friend Nasheen Rajan. She's got an incredible story of extremely humble beginnings, and now she is on her way to study policy to really help all of us, the Asian American community. And in particular, um, she is doing a lot to engage the community, her Ismaili community, to make sure that they are educated and informed on how to take action not just for the upcoming elections, but to stay politically and socially engaged throughout. I want to give a big shout out to former guest Sam Cho for connecting us. And again, big thanks to uh, Nasheen for making time for us here on the show. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying well. Thank you so much again for listening. And here now is my conversation with Nasheen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Aries and Americans, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to us. We wish you all the health, happiness, and safety in the world. It's August, or maybe it's September when you're listening to this. We're still not through COVID. There's a lot of unrest, um, a lot of um, wrong things in our country and around the world. And we're doing a lot what we can in our own communities to get people to vote. Uh, we have an election coming up uh, in a couple months, perhaps uh, the most important election in our lifetimes, perhaps in many of our lifetimes, um, no matter how old you are, uh, to make sure that we at least do the most basic thing, the first step to make sure that we put our country and the world on the path that we want to go on uh, to make this a more welcoming place for all of us. America, after all, was founded by a bunch of people who decided that they wanted to make a better life elsewhere. And so my guest today, um, she is doing her part into activating her community uh, to get the vote out, to share information about what is going on. So we're going to learn about what she's doing with the organization Ismailis Rise Up. And my certain distinct pleasure to welcome Nosheen Rajan to the show. Hello. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Uh, before we get started, I, I do want to say thank you and give a big shout out to former guest Sam Cho who's a mutual <laughs> friend of ours, and who introduced uh, you to me. And so, Sam, wherever you are, I know exactly where you're in Seattle. You're not, nobody's going anywhere. Uh, I hope you're staying well, Commissioner Sam. And uh, thanks for introducing, uh, thanks for making this show happen, man. But Nosheen, uh, welcome to this show. Share with us a little bit about you uh, before we go deeper into who you are and what you do. Sure. Where do I start? 
I feel like everyone probably feels that way. Well, let, let's uh, talk a little bit more about in the moment of what you're up to now, and then we'll go, we'll wind the clock and, and learn a little bit more about your personal history. So share with us what you're up to now. All right. Um, so I am currently an incoming graduate student um, headed to New Jersey this upcoming weekend to move to school, and I'm very excited. I'll be studying, um, I'll be getting my master's in public administration, so I'm fulfilling my South Asian parents' dream by getting my graduate degree, and they're very excited about that. Um, and I am very, very actually excited about, um, you know, using that as a way to propel myself into policymaking in the future. Um, and specifically, as you mentioned, Jerry, I'm, you know, right now running this grassroots organization called the Smileys Rise Up, um, which brings together folks from the Smiley community to activate um, votes and to do voter education um, when it comes to voter suppression, voting rights as well, and really just mobilize people. So we are um, doing a bunch of things. Every month we're running an organizer training um, that's led by Smiley's for Smiley's. So we have a whole curriculum. We trained 56 organizers this past month. Um, we have about 40 or so signed up without even advertising for the second one yet. So we're very excited. The second one's happening on September 5th. Um, and then our third one will happen in October. And our goal is to train 100 organizers. And given COVID, we've been able to do so in a virtual nature. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been really great to bring the community together in this way. Um, and we, we span across all of America, but we're focused on states like Texas, Georgia, um, Virginia, Florida, where there's happens to be a large smiley population as well. In Texas alone, there are about 40,000 smileys. So in some districts, that can make a big difference when, a, in a big, when there's big voter turnout. So we're very excited. Um, we're also working with organizations like Common Cause and Spread the Vote to talk about voter suppression issues and offer call to action uh, to our community members. And uh, we're coming out with videos uh, talking about voter registration, mail-in ballots in Hindi, Gujarati, Kachi, um, Farsi, Dari, and Subni, which are all languages represented by our community. So there's a lot going on. We're super excited. And we just really want to get out the vote because it's, I mean, as you said, it's probably the most important election of our lifetime. I agree. Thanks for doing all that hard work, especially within your own community, which I think sometimes is uh, perhaps the most challenging, particularly mm -hmm. when it comes to intergenerational dialogue um, about why certain things should matter. Because um, our parents and even older grew up literally in a different world and a different time. Share with us and share with the audience, because it was something new to me and something that I had to learn. But when you talk about the Ismaili community, how do you define that community and what can we learn about you guys? Sure. Um, and I and I want to and I just want to want to make a quick disclaimer. We are a bunch of Ismailis coming together, but we in no way represent the institutions or our spiritual leader. Um, we're just a collective unit, just trying to activate the vote. Um, when it comes to you know what is an Ismaili or who is an Ismaili, um, we happen to be a subsect in um, the Shia Islam branch. Uh, you know within you know general Muslims, um, so we're a minority within a minority if you, if you want to make it simple. Um, and we have a long history, but basically our base, our tenet is that we have a spiritual leader whose lineage, lineage tra traces back to, um, prophet or sorry, Hazrat Ali or the first Imam. Um, so we are currently 
our current imam is the 49th imam um, in our in our sect, and he gives us spiritual guidance in our daily and um, spiritual lives. And and how and and so um, we grew up in this really close knit community that spans across all over the world. So we have communities in the U.S. and Canada. We have communities in Africa, specifically Kenya, Tanzania, um, Central Asia, South Asia, and we have also smaller communities in other parts of the world as well. So um, it is a is a wide spanning community, um, but you know our basic tenant is is how do we serve not only our own community but communities at large globally. So actually, our, our Imam, who is also known as his Highness Prince Aga Khan, founded the Aga Khan Foundation, Aga Khan Development Network, um, which is an institution that does a lot of development work across the world, especially in Africa and Central Asia and South Asia. So um, I think because of, because of the fact that we have a leader to look to um, when it comes to service and leadership, um, it's very much embedded in our own um, faith as well. And so we all grew up learning that as a, a basic and most important tenet is to serve others. That is excellent. Th thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, having had so many various and diverse array of Asian Americans on this show, I learned so much. And, and you know, so I, I'm, I have learned so much about your community already in, in having, you know, pre-interview conversations and my own research. And I am so excited to learn more um, as we dive into um, stories about you, learning more about you and, and, and what makes you so passionate about serving your community. Um, so now let's learn about uh, the Rajan family. How did the Rajan family <laughs> become Asian American? And um, mm -hmm. when did you guys, who moved here, when, how, where, and tell us all about uh, Nosheen's earlier years in America. <laughs> all right. Um, I'll start with my dad. Um, my dad came to America um, in the 80s. He, he was the youngest, he is the youngest of five. Um, he grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, and in a pretty low-income family over there. You know, when, when he tells us about his childhood, he says they sometimes had to make do with sugar and roti um, for food um, and, and didn't have a lot to survive on. Um, but he was also the naughtiest of the five. Uh, and uh, as the youngest son, he, he did create some trouble. Um, and so my grandfather was like, you need to go to America and, and, and become a responsible young man. So he gave my dad a hundred dollars and my dad landed in Houston, Texas, um, and began his journey there, um, during when Reagan was president. And, um, he actually, um, he worked three jobs when he came to America. So he was, um, doing work at a hotel um, and doing some service industry work. He, um, the, the main sort of job he had, he was a janitor at a laundry shop. Um, and he, you know, he, he, he tells me he, there were times where he would like sleep in his car and then change out at McDonald's and go to work. And I think for him, it was just about, you know, making sure that he's able to sustain himself, that he's on a path um, to really, you know, be financially stable. Um, and so he actually had to grow up pretty quickly once he came here. Um, so that's my dad. And, and he eventually, I mean, went on to, um, someone actually from the community trusted him to manage a laundry shop after him being a janitor for a while. 
and then he expanded from there and became became this entrepreneur. So never went to school, never went, you know, never um, after high school. He never attended college. He he didn't get any higher education, but he's probably the smartest man I know because of just his entrepreneurial spirit. And then my mom uh, arrived with her family when she was eleven um, in the seventies. They arrived in Chicago. Um, and she had seven other siblings and she was the youngest sister. Um, shortly after arriving to America, um, my grandfather, so my mom's dad passed away. So she grew up in a, in a household with, you know, with a single mother, um, who got married at a very early age. My grandma got married, um, at age 14. So they had to figure a lot out by themselves. Um, my mom did her high school education here. She started college, but never finished college. Um, she got her associates and that was about it. Um, and similarly, she grew up um, working, you know, at Walmart <laughs> and McDonald's and um, ended up supporting my dad in this business when they, when they met each other um, and became lifelong partners. Um, and they actually moved to Houston, Texas, where my parents met at our mosque. So um, or a place of prayer. Um, and they were both volunteers in the, in the shoe company. So, uh, <laughs> um, and they're my dad's best friend and my mom's best friend were getting married to each other. So that helped as well. And the rest is history. That's so cool. Definitely humble beginnings. Um, and as you share with us earlier, you're mm-hmm. on your way to, um, as you said, a school in New Jersey. Um, <laughs> but it does live on the very short menu of aspirational and perhaps acceptable schools to uh, not just <laughs> South Asian, but all Asian parents. And, um, and, and you said you're living out the dream of your South Asian parents by attending Princeton, Princeton uh, to get your master's, but don't fool yourself. It's not done until you get the PhD. So I know, got, I know right. Got, My dad is already pushing that on me already slightly. Got, uh, He's like, so, so when are you thinking about getting your PhD? And I was like, dad, I'm going to be in school forever. Masters yet. I know I got six <laughs> more years to whatever you're doing, but that is really, really amazing. Uh, Noshin, because I think, you know, especially now in 2020, as we uh, see what's happening in the country and see what's happening in the world. And uh, sometimes we see some of our friends and contemporaries not really uh, empathize with what's going on or, or see the humanity and things. And for all of us, you know, whether you are born here or not, we need to go back only one generation or two um, for many Asian Americans. Um, why do you think our parents moved here like, to, to, to leave, to go to a better situation and however they define that? Um, some of our friends from other countries mm-hmm. were here by force um, through refugee programs and resettlement programs. But, you know, and then we often don't have these conversations with our family um, because sometimes it's a very painful subject and they don't want to talk about it. But in short, we're not too far removed from being, uh, you know, uh, on the other side of injustices. And we're certainly not far removed from being the beneficiary of mm. uh, whether it was uh, personal or institutional generosity for, for us to be here and to be given the opportunities that we've had so that you can now proudly go from a, a janitor to an Ivy League grad in one freaking generation. Like, that's <laughs> insane. And and so, you know, all, all the credit goes to you and your family for for, for doing that. Um, so share with us about growing up, you know, what, what did you want to do? What sort of lessons did you learn as a child of uh, the amazing parents that you've just shared with us about? 
what did you want to do? And tell us about your childhood. Yeah. Um, so I actually grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is, I mean, I mean, you know, in the panhandle and, and an interesting place to live if I were to think back today. <laughs> um, and then uh, my dad, you know, when I was around four, um, opened up um, a jewelry store in Orlando, Florida, which prompted us to move there. Hmm. Um, and so I actually grew up in Orlando. We started out in an apartment together. Um, but then when my sister was born, we moved into a house and we actually lived in that house for um, almost 14 years. Yeah, I wow. think 14 years. Um, and, you know, growing up, my dad was traveling a lot. He, you know, um, really wanted to ensure that we, and he still does this, where he's like, you guys will never have the generational wealth that it takes to like sustain yourself and your kids and their kids. Like I need to like, he, he keeps working hard for, for that. Like he wants us to have the best quality of life. Um, and so he, he's, he's traveled then domestically and he now travels internationally and I mean, he's gone a lot. Um, he's actually in town right now, which is really nice, but that, that was sort of like our upbringing where he would be traveling a lot and working really hard to ensure my sister and I had the best, you know, education, the best access to, you know, whatever. So we grew up, um, you know, in that sphere and in, in a community and in a way that we didn't have to have any worries. Right. So I think we were very lucky in that way and privileged, um, because he worked so hard and sacrificed so much for us. Um, and my mom sacrificed in her own way too, because, you know, he traveled a lot and she, it was just the three of us alone all the time. Um, and she um, was, you know, she used to work with my dad and, um, you know, as my dad started traveling, she became more present at home and ensuring that we were there. And um, Jerry, we grew up like running around from class to class. My mom kept us so busy. We were like at piano class one day and Girl Scouts the other day and like karate class the other day and then religious education classes and dance classes. Like there was never a moment where we just sat still. She always kept us busy. Um, and I think that contributed to, you know, perhaps like why I feel like I can juggle many things at once even today and, and feel odd just sitting still. Um, so we grew up in a very busy sort of lifestyle. Um, we grew up, you know, mostly just us girls, um, at home at least. Um, and, um, you know, and when we're, and when my parents and outside of school and outside of the, you know, sort of the, uh, context of my dad traveling for work, um, we were also very involved in our community. So we spent a lot of time, like a volunteer service is a big part of um, our religious community. So when we were not running around to piano and Girl Scouts and karate and dance classes, we were, we were usually, um, you know, doing some kind of volunteer service within our community or going to religious classes um, and almost there every day. I, I think you've, I, when you share that story, um, and, and you laughed about it, but just being so busy, um, mm. I think many, many folks resonate and, um, you know, our, our parents, regardless of, uh, where they came from or whatever the circumstance was, they just wanted us to have everything. And yeah. I think it's tough. Um, you know, uh, my parents were not able to put me into everything that they wanted to, or they thought that they needed to, to keep up with other people in the community. And, uh, it, it, it's, you know, it was their love language and they just didn't know any other way than to provide opportunities for us because 
very maybe true. They didn't have it. Yeah. Or, you know, um, maybe they didn't have it or maybe they just really thought that that was going to be the way that we were going to be, um, I don't know, have, have an easier or, or a different path to, to success in their own minds. Right. And I don't know, I, I often get frustrated and I know a lot of our, our people in our community do too. Like our parents don't understand and it's not mm. just, you know, it's not just, I think it was a beastie boy song, or whatever, like every generation has misunderstandings, but particularly when you put a immigrant, you know, uh, culture to it, it's just like, my parents don't know anything. They don't speak the language, yada, yada, yada. But you gotta understand where they're coming from, right? Like, oh, yeah. They escaped whatever the hell they came from. <laughs> and then you mentioned your mother is the youngest of eight. My mom too, like literally youngest out of eight. And like, <laughs> you know, lit- can you imagine? I, I mean, you don't have kids. Like, can you? I, I have two. I can't keep up with two. How the hell are you gonna have eight? And, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and then like moms didn't work back then. Like, um, in like post war, like, the economy not being great Korea, like what the hell? Um, but that's their, that's their perspective and that's their baseline of how they view the world. And so, um, perhaps some of the, you know, the, the love language that you and I received, and I know so many of other friends received was just like, this is, I'm going to provide you opportunities and, and expose you to music and to sports and to different things. And, but I don't know if it was for you, but, um, did they actually want you to be so good that you can make a living out of it? Or was it like just good enough until it wasn't? Because I, I feel like my parents, like they put us into swimming stuff. But yeah. we go to swim practice every day, but she never signed us up for meets. But it was like, it was, it was like a discipline machine, but it wasn't like, don't be so good so that you think swimming is your out, not academics. And so I had a little bit of that in my life where it was like, you know, uh, <laughs> I definitely know. I definitely feel that. I feel like some of it was for from a discipline stand, standpoint. I remember growing up every summer, we would do swimming classes, even though like yeah. we knew how to swim because it was like an activity to keep us disciplined. And then my mom had a whole routine for us where like I, for example, hated I hate eating bananas. And so she would, you know, cut up fruit for me and make me try different fruits. So I get accustomed to it. And then I have to sit there and like learn the meaning of my prayers and like the hymns, you know, and that was like my routine every day in the summer. Um, so even, even in the periods where we're supposed to be taking a break, it was like, no, you know, no sort of break. It was in a constant, like, and, and, you know, and you're right. Like it, that's their love language. And and that's how we, you know, I think when we grow up is when we can reflect back and and look at it that way. I think growing up, certainly it's like, you know, it's almost like a sense of pressure of, if they're if they're doing all this for us and making room for us and, and taking us to these things and the one thing we need to do is like do well in school and excel and you know whatever yeah. it may be but that inherently adds a lot of pressure right like i remember in first grade um both, both of my parents didn't like finish school and um as an older child like you have to figure out a lot of things on your own and i remember um in first grade i came back home and i had like i got my report card i had one c two uh two b's and three a's and my dad sat down he's like sat down and he's like you're not getting into harvard with this report card <laughs> and i was like only like you know in first grade and i was like okay he's like you have to work harder if you want to go to a good school and i'm like okay okay 
Um, and I think like the flip switch then, you know, and I like was such a nerd in, in elementary school and middle school and like was taking physics in eighth grade and like biology in like eighth grade. And then um, went to a harder like high school and I like hadn't, I just didn't feel good enough and inadequate all the time. Although the school academically taught me a lot um, because of the pressure I was coming in with myself, with, you know, the anxiety of growing up, being an older child, right. And being um, also in this position where we feel like we have to, you know, exceed all expectations and that's still not enough. Like if you're at a hundred, it's still not good enough. You need to be at a 110, right. Um, you know, even I remember like getting my college decisions and I was so hard on myself. It was like not the end of the world, but because I didn't get into like my dream school, you know, I put pressure on myself. Thankfully, I think, um, I feel like my parents have, um, over time, like come to an understanding where they also realize <laughs> Like they can't be hard on, they have to be your friends. I know that um, there was this one point when I was like in middle school and, you know, you go to this space where you start to like maybe prioritize your friends a bit more or you're more interested in your friends. And my dad freaked out and he was like, you're not like, you don't care about your family. And, you know, and I didn't know how to explain to him that I'm just a teenager who has friends, right? And like, it happens. Um, and I think he even realized like the way he was communicating with me wasn't working. So he actually like, completely, you know, changed the way he communicated with me, became a friend, became a confidant. Um, and that completely transformed our relationship over time. That's, there's, there's so many layers there. And um, <laughs> put, put, putting that undue pressure on a first grade is awful. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I hope that our generation like changes that at least yeah. of um, happiness being the goal, not Harvard. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh, and yeah. taking cues from children to encourage them to pursue things that excite them, not follow this narrow checklist of like, go, 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 go. And, mm -hmm. but I think when we talk to our peers about it, particularly the ones who've taken that path and are traditionally successful, they get very offended and they're like, what do you mean? I turned out fine. I'm like, did you turn out fine because of the parenting or despite the parenting? And that's something we mm. don't ever want to really talk about because it's offensive to your parents. But, you know, what could you have been, right? Um, for every time we talk about, you know, um, people without proper access, not, you know, how many doctors we miss out on, but like how many artistic geniuses are stuck in, you know, operating rooms and boardrooms and, you know, courtrooms. I don't know. Yeah. Because yeah. once you go and once you have certain logos on your resume, um, it's hard to pivot away from that because a lot of different reasons. Um, so you you went to a high school that was academically challenging. Um, mm -hmm. It was also a a place. Uh, or I guess tell me about the you know um, your, your culture and your religion, um, which I think um, for for the Ismaili community is is somewhat tied um, together is very important to you. It was rooted, yeah. you were rooted in the community, um, a very tight-knit community. How did you view diversity and your place within your community in your high school and college, mm -hmm. particularly in high school? Because you went to a school that I'd imagined that wasn't as diverse as you would have preferred it to be. Um, what was some of those experiences like? They were hard. It was hard, Gary. It was really hard because I think um, 
my parents, you know, wanted us, like I said, to get the best education. And, and that's rooted in some of the culture and religious, religious aspect as well, where, you know, we're taught like you should, you should get the best education. This is how you um, have a long, you know, um, a longstanding quality of life. And so that was the impetus of them putting us into this hard, harder um, high school. Um, and I, I think they, you know, they, 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 they always mean well. And I think as you grow up, you learn that. And as you communicate with them, you know, um, they understand that as well. And I definitely came in feeling, being like, I wanted to become a doctor, like <laughs> I feel like all stories start this way. Right. Um, and I, and I quickly realized I wasn't good at math and science. And, but I also didn't have the like community, like the high school support, I feel like to, um, encourage me or like to, you know, to kind of be there when I didn't like, didn't get something. Cause it was like, Oh, you're, you're the, you're the South Asian, you should get it. Right. Um, and, uh, I think when I, when I would do things outside of school, like when I did programs outside of school, summer programs, some, some of the summer programs I did where there were, where was more diversity around me, I felt like I questioned my own identity more in those circumstances, which was healthy. Um, and I think, you know, through some of those summer programs is when I decided, like, I don't want to become a doctor. Like I am, you know, I love the humanities. I want to go down this path of, um, becoming a, you know, an ambassador of some sort in the future. Right. So I, I did this camp called Seeds of Peace in high school, uh, which brings together teenagers across the world in especially specifically from conflict zones. So we had, um, students from Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Egypt, um, to talk about the Middle East conflict. And then we had students from Pakistan, India, Afghanistan to talk about the South Asia conflict. And here I am, you know, um, representing the American delegation. <laughs> and as you can, as you can imagine sitting in a room, you know, with other Muslims from different parts of the world, with South Asians from different parts of the world and feeling like a complete identity conflict there, um, definitely pushed me a lot. And I think when, after that, when I came back to school, I questioned that more. I don't think in ninth or 10th grade, I really thought about like, am I the only, you know, only person of color here? Um, but then I think as I went on, I started to realize that like, there are not that many people of color at my school and that inherently affects what you learn and what you're taught yeah. and what you do, yeah. um, in, in, in the base, in the most basic ways. And I actually was on the journalism team at, in high school. So I started the series of like, do, I remember one year, um, during the, t around the time Martin Luther King Jr.'s, um, holiday that we have in January, um, to celebrate him in his life. Um, I did this whole article about how we, how we talk about race at our school. And I remember that had like the article had to be trimmed down quite a bit as a high school Ugh. student. <laughs> um, and it was a two part series talking about like, do we do a good job as in, you know, in our high school um, talk or in the school talking about race and, you know, and I, and I reflect back and, you know, we live in these awful times. And I, I think about that and I wish as a student, I knew I felt more empowered to sort yeah. of like, do more but i think also you know when you're in a predominantly white school and you're the south asian muslim young girl there's definitely an inherent power yeah. dynamic there it actually reminds me of um well, he didn't talk about it in the story but he wrote about it in his book fuke tran who has been on the show he, he shares also a story he was on the high school newspaper too and, and he talks about his own racist incident and mm -hmm. Basically, the faculty advisor says, yeah, I don't know if you want to publish that, you know, and it's 
and, and so these things matter, right? And and so mm-hmm. and and so it's not just your incident um, or Fuchs incident; it's countless millions of these things that happen that either um, put yellow and brown kids in this mindset that our stories don't matter, or that it's just better to try to assimilate and and try to make as least noise as possible. I hate I, I you know I hate the word assimilate because um, I think it makes you, it is like the, it's not technically, but to me, it's the opposite of authenticity. And I will say it's also really hard because right. Like in, in a, when you're, when you're put in a context where, you know, most of your peers don't look like you, you feel like you have to, you know, react or act a certain age, especially if you're younger, you know, you have to stay more quiet and in our Asian culture, we learned that, you know, we need to be quiet, right? Yeah. And we have to be respectful. Um, yeah. And we're also taught that we need to, you know, represent the best of us. So I think these conflicting messages, like, almost dim who we are completely. Oh, sure. And, and I, I only feel like I've come to a realization of who I am and have become much more comfortable in my identity when I went to college. And I had the freedom yeah. to kind of navigate that. But throughout throughout growing up, I mean, it's it's really tough, especially when you're coming from an Asian background and yeah. you're you're also, you know, in this heavily like white community no and and i think as we get older it's become much more evident to us because we can see with perspective and and clarity that Mm -hmm. the asian ideals um east south confusionism not doesn't matter those ideals of don't rock the boat keep your head down never talk back so on and so forth fell perfectly into the 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 narrative of us being the good minority right look at those guys right and and so, you know, what, what are the stereotypical jobs that Asian people have even in large corporations, like accounting or technology, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. non-social or non-mobile, not upwardly mobile positions, entire departments where like we're just expected to just say yes, sir, and do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you you are leading by example. Um, we, we continue to feature, you know, badass people like you here on this show that do various things that aren't just, you know, on the limited menu of jobs that are um, pre-approved by our parents. Um, and I hope that for the younger people listening, please don't ever let anybody tell you that your story doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard. I know it's hard when you're younger. I know it's hard when that person is in a position of authority, especially if they're your teacher and you think that they're going to retaliate against you with a bad grade or a boss that might demote you or, you know, make your life miserable. And this is not to say that unless you say F you flip some tables over and walk out that you're not being authentic, but know that you're not alone. And, um, you, you'll figure out a way to make that situation work for you. Um, Mm -hmm. but bottling it up is also, I don't think personally is, is the most healthy way to, um, you know, deal with that. But, um, however you, you know, uh, however it works for you, whether it is finding community or, you know, reaching out to somebody, um, ask for help. And I think especially in 2020, um, this whole notion of just grateful to have a job has been amplified like tenfold. And so, hmm. and companies, uh, because they exist to make money organizations too, um, Sometimes they're unfortunately taking advantage of our younger folks to say, you're lucky to have a job, work harder, work longer, and, you know, we're going to make 
your life a little bit more miserable, especially because we know you're always home. Um, so, um, a quick tangent, but, uh, yeah, if, you know, seek help or seek guidance from somebody within the organization that can help you if you have a mentor or somebody, but, um, you know, 2020 is challenging as it is, uh, trying to be healthy and then to make sure that we're going to get through these times. But, um, those things probably should not be one of the very few things that, uh, get in your way. Um, so you went from, uh, your dad wanted you to go to Harvard at first grade. Um, <laughs> didn't, didn't happen. Um, sent you to a very high achieving prep school in, in, uh, in Florida to help you achieve those, uh, <laughs> you know, doctor dreams, uh, didn't happen. Um, you decided pretty early on that you wanted to study and to make your mark, um, mm. learning and forming policy, um, not just about any part of the world, but specifically about Asia. Yeah. And, and so you, you chose a school and a program that would allow you to do that. Um, and then that is, you know, obviously con you, you were still continuing down that path. Um, how did you know that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, I, I uh, Jerry, that summer camp really changed my life. I think sitting in dialogue every single day as a 16-year-old and talking about real issues and trying to empathize with one another as kids and, and the fact that we had the power to do so, we were so empowered to be in that. We called it a dialogue hut to talk about these deep-seeing issues. And I remember on the last day of camp, you know, um, one of the, one of the boys in our, in our, in our dialogue, um, group who was Palestinian and, um, one of the boys, um, in our group that was Israeli, um, you know, they, they would always come and, and they would butt heads. And I remember on the last day, you know, the Palestinian boy said to the Israeli boy, I may never agree with you, but I will always take the time to listen to you. And even something simple like that, like, I'm not going to like, you know, agree with what's happening, but I will sit here and talk to you and, and see you as a human for who you are. Um, and the fact that a month prior to when we started, like, it was just constant, like we would end dialogue sessions because it got so heated as 16 year olds. Mm. Right. Um, I was like, if I, if I can, if I can be in a room that like makes that happen, like this kind of thing happen in an adult setting every single day of my life, I will feel so happy and satisfied, you know? And I think that's when I was, I came back to school that year and I was like, I definitely, not that I'm, I'm all, also, I was good. I was better at the humanities. Let's just say that I really, really sucked at math and science. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's one justification, but also like, I, I definitely, um, wanted to represent our country, um, in, in a conflict resolution setting. And that's kind of what I, you know, what I sought out to do. And once I told my parents, they were very, very supportive. And I think it was very interesting because graduating from high school, I was the only one in my Muslim community who left the state and studied outside the state. And I'm the only one who was studying international relations because it was like not even a topic that anyone talks, mm -hmm. talks about, right. Politics is not really a, a big sort of profession to go into in the community. Um, and when I would tell people I'm, I'm headed to DC, Washington, DC for university, and I'm going to American university, the question I would get in return is which American university. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, there is like generally, you know, not a, not a sense for like, 
what you know uh, what that school was or, or what kind of program <laughs> it had and what what me meant you know me going to Washington D.C. meant at the time. But I was very very lucky to have supportive um, family who who you know wanted me to take charge of my dreams. Talk to me more about because you again going back to your community. Um, mm. Oftentimes, and particularly for older members of our community, um, deeply uh, at the intersection of, of culture and religion, um, oftentimes our political views or our socioeconomic or I guess just cultural views or just how we see the world, um, the lens through which we see the world, there we go, um, is colored by what we hear from our leaders. And so most religions um, tend to be more conservative. Our right. parents um, in general are more conservative than conservative than we may be. Um, mm -hmm. How were some of the challenges that you faced in trying to form your own opinion, regardless of whether you've reconfirmed what they believed in or even an opportunity to study to form your own voice at the risk of going against or standing at odds with what your parents and your local community believe to be the right way. Because when it, when faith gets mixed into those things, it's re mm -hmm. it gets even more clawed in the conviction becomes stronger. And we're seeing it now in America, right? Um, mm -hmm. People are, I think, mixing religion with politics and mm -hmm. so they view it as the same and therefore it is more challenging than ever to get people to see a different side of things because for them if i am a therefore i must be b and so i can't be one without the other um what, what are some of the things that you know uh you went through and then perhaps some encouraging words to some of our listeners who still might be struggling with that in informing their own view of the world regardless of what they actually may be, that might be slightly different than what their community believes. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to uh, my religious community, you know, we, we do believe in this idea of service. And so for me, it was always like, this should be a natural pivot, right? Like if I want to go into public service, it should be something that's inherent. I am, this is how I'm going to be the best ambassador to my faith. Um, and we talk about that a lot. How do you, how do you become an ambassador of your faith? I think there's still like, um, you know, this is how I personally think about things. I think there's still a disconnect between, you know, what that means in the public service space versus what that means like in a general sense, right? So I I think no matter what, the odds were against me, you know? And I think if you kind of go into that mentality of like, no matter what situation I am in, whether it be in a classroom or whether it be, you know, um, from the perspective of the larger Muslim community or Asian community, right? Like I said, I'm already like, if you think about <laughs> the scale of minorities, like I'm a female, right? I, I'm um, a Shia Muslim. I am, um, you know, like first generation, right? And I think like when you start to really accept all of that and feel a sense of empowerment from that and own your space. And what I mean by that is like, you have to almost shut everything out and just put your head down and focus and look at the goal ahead. And I think that plus 
my personal love and desire and passion to serve, I, I can't just sit still and not do anything to help. Like, I, I mean, when I, and I'm going to say help, like I'm always thinking about ways of like, okay, I see this, like, how do I make it better? Right. So I think because my focus has been so, you know, down that path, I've kind of shut out all the noise that could exist. Um, not to say that there is a noise, right. Not to say that there aren't circumstances where there's again, inherent power dynamics, even within my own culture, there is a power dy- I have, I have been in situations where I've had, you know, a superior who's a male and, you know, from the same culture as me. And that plays out in its own way too. Not, it's not just like a, it's with, it happens within the race as well. Right. And you have to constantly prove yourself and that gets exhausting. But I think if you put your head down and you work hard, the the work will eventually show for itself. And as as long as you're in the pursuit of happiness and success in your own life, um, and 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 you're passionate about it, I think that success will come. Like that will inherently come to you. And I know I know that might sound like a very cheesy answer, but honestly, that's how <laughs> I've been able to navigate it. Like if I if I you know in college, like I, um, you know, led our undergraduate student government council, you know, and, and start, and then at the same time I've started like a student group looking at us Pakistan issues and looking at, you know, specifically issues affecting South Asian women. And I think I just owned, owned the different identities I had, whether it be like wanting to be a leader in one area, and then also like working on issues that matter to me from a cultural you know standpoint as well. And I think once I started to just be me and be authentically me, it didn't really matter where, what space I was in. And I see that through the authenticity that, that comes through, um, like everything that you've done. Um, because I, I think, you know, sure. Now we joke the whole conversation, like, oh, you're going to a school that makes your parents proud. But like, <laughs> yeah. can, can you imagine telling your Pakistani parents that you're going not to an Ivy league and not only are you going to, um, what would they would consider, you know, not a household name school to study international studies. What is that? And then what are you mm-hmm. actually studying? Oh, I'm studying about where we came from. No, we left that place so you could avoid <laughs> it. Why are you studying it? Right? Oh my like, God. Yeah, I know. That's... Especially after I, I graduated school and I entered into international development. That's what I was doing for the past four years. The USA projects I was working on were based in Pakistan, and my parents were like, "What? Like, what are you?" We, we um, left there for a better life. What are you, What are you doing? But I think that perspective also helps, right? Of like having, like, I could speak the language, I could understand the culture, yeah. and I can still push for change. Yeah, you know, and from a different angle, like knowing those things, right? So I think you have. I think that's the personally the push I've taken is when I'm in these you know, work environments, I always bring that lens and think about yeah. even if I am not Pakistani, I have that heritage and I understand what, what it means to be Pakistani. So how can I take that knowledge back and do international development better? And I think yeah. once you start to push for that, you can see like, you know, these, these identities that you struggle with can actually help and, and can actually resolve a lot of things. Not always, but somewhat they can. Look, I, I we, we joke about it, but Look, here I am running an Asian American podcast and we run a mm-hmm. company that even makes even more, right? Like, um, I I don't know, because I don't want to hear the answer. Like, I haven't asked my parents, like, what do you think about my new career choice? Right? Like, <laughs> But if not us, then whom is sort yeah. of where I like, 
who better prepared or who better equipped to tell these stories than those of us who understand both sides because the frustration in both storytelling and in foreign policy is that the narrative for too damn long has been set by people who have no idea what the hell we go through, where we've been, what our parents are, what the actual nuances are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in academia, let's call it out for what it is. People, there's, there's all the department heads of foreign anything or international anything don't reflect the subject matter. So just because you are the oh expert or yeah. the foreign or the um, you are uh, the former ambassador to XYZ, therefore you are deemed this foreign policy expert in this region. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking that away from you. I'm sure you're qualified from an academic technical perspective, but are you empathetically qualified? Do you understand yes. the nuances of the culture and the tone of yes what you're talking about and, and who you're dealing with. And so that I think is so empowering and encouraging for us mm-hmm. who on the backs of our ancestors that can reach across and saying, yo, like you want to check my like resume? Like, yeah, that's fine. I'm legit. Like I have the credibility for to do what I want to do, but I also understand because I lived it and I still continue to live my experience that I am uniquely qualified, that you are uniquely qualified. And so is everybody listening to do something within our space. You can't complain that there's not enough Asian people in Hollywood and not do a goddamn thing about it. Like that doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or here's, here's the kicker. You can't complain about the lack of diversity in media and then not support your friends who are trying to act and, you know, just not believe in them. Not so, you know, like it's, it doesn't, you can't, you can't do both. You have to do one or you have support or stop complaining. And I was going to say, and, and we lack, we lack this empathy so much today. I don't know what has happened, why we stepped into this like cancel culture for lack of better words, but like, even when we think about, you know, take take the context of the Asian American culture, right? And, and mm-hmm. you think about um, our parents immigrating here. And then you think about, you know, we hear sort of um, research, research analysis that comes out and says, you know, Asian Americans don't really vote. They're not politically active. You know, Muslims don't vote. They're not politically active. And if you start to think about some of the histories and, and their immigration patterns and like where they came from, and understand the politics in those countries, you'll understand their lack of like, you know, their lack of um, desire or want or passion to vote. Not to say that they shouldn't be, but like, it, I think it's so quick to be like, you know, oh, they're not going to vote. Like, let's not, let's not even talk to them about their interests, right? But I think there's like a deep, there are deep seated frustrations that exist in the Asian American community. And you have to be willing to sit down, and understand, have a dialogue with one another and understand to like unpack that. My parents, like, voted for the first time four years ago. And, um, you know, I, my sister and I had to sit down with our parents and they, I think it's, I think it's definitely the, the sort of frustrations that they saw back in, in the home country, um, and all the generations of like politics and it doesn't make a difference, you know, it doesn't make a difference who they selected as the power struggle all the time. 
And I think when they arrived in this country, they just really wanted to just put their heads down and, and work really hard. Um, and they didn't really get in, in the middle. You know, they were taught to not, I mean, there's this inherent sort of like, thus don't get in the middle of politics, right? But then also they just were so um, consumed by their work and ensuring that they're building like a quality of life for us um, that is, you know, healthy and happy and all these different things and takes a lot of work um, that they never practice their own right to vote. Um, and nor did, and I think they, they, there's a struggle that exists between like, them feeling so connected back to home and then, you know, mm. being Americans and that tension exists and it's never reconciled. So even like, a, you know, what I'm saying is like, even when you think about just like this whole idea of us not understanding and being able to empathize, I think it's, it's when Asians, Asian Americans talk to other Asian Americans, we can start to unpack these things more because we understand <laughs> the sort of historical narrative that exists. <laughs> yes, uh, all of it. Um, and I don't know. Uh, I also vo voting is the most important thing. Um, I guess we can joke mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, if you think your parents are going to vote like against your own interest, then maybe don't tell them how to vote. Um, you should still vote. Um, but vote, <laughs> voting is important. Um, so let, let's talk about voting. Um, yeah. You know, you're 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 headed to grad school um, yeah. to to uh, to change the world, if for for lack of a better term. Uh, but before that happens, in the next, you know, um, let's call it two months, um, less than two months, we have an election coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an election coming up that will uh, make it. God, I, I don't. You know, um, that will make it difficult. That will make life in America uh, significantly more challenging, um, particularly for people who look like me and for particularly for people that look like you. Mm -hmm. um, do we know that for a fact? No, but it has gotten worse, uh, yeah. especially with COVID, especially with, uh, you know, the encouragement or I guess looking the other way of uh, racist attacks and everything foreign policy, um, domestic policy, immigration policy, the list goes on. Um, why is voting so important to you? And share with us the inspiration point and the genesis of Ismailis Rise Up. Yeah. Um, there is so much at stake, whether it be healthcare, whether it be education, whether it be just basic human dignity and rights. Um, and when, you know, when we hear that this is about the soul of our nation, it really is about the soul of our nation. What I've come across, you know, you know, there's definitely the segment of population, our parents' generation, um, you know, which has this apathy and that's easy to engage and have a conversation and you just need to sit down and, and talk to them. Right. And, um, then they care about legacy issues. So if we're talking about, you know, the environment and climate change and all these things that are going to have an inherent impact on legacy, um, that's one way to have that dialogue with them. Right. Um, but I will stress that it's not just about voting in a presidential election. Elections happen at the state level, at the local level that directly affect your life and your well-being. And it's our responsibility 
especially those of us who are citizens and represent many, many people who are still undocumented, who don't have citizenship status. We represent the young people who cannot vote for their environment. For us to just exercise our basic duty to vote is the least we can do. Um, so I say that, you know, very passionately because Again, this isn't just about our leader at the national level, although that will make a huge difference. <laughs> um, but it is about the people that we directly, you know, elect at the local level that will be accountable to sort of these major issues that affect us on a daily basis, like social security, healthcare, education, human rights, immigration, countless of things. Um, this actually began, Jerry, four years ago. I reached out to my co-founder um, at the time and was like, let's, let's just put together an event where we bring together like young high school students age 14 to 16 to do a phone bank. <laughs> and so what we did was we, um, the campaign office was like right across from our place of prayer, our place of worship. And um, after prayers one day, we drove these kids across the street and we had the entire campaign office to ourselves, <laughs> and we phone banked for two hours and they were taught by the organizer on the campaign how to do so how to talk to voters and um you know and i think the most empowering thing after that was talking to the to the young kids who couldn't vote right they're just they're calling up literally calling up voters in their 14 15 16 and they said that they felt like they had a chance to make a difference in the history of our nation. And they felt like this was the most politically engaged that they felt, right? And, and sort of like their lifetime. And, and they wanted to do more. And they asked, how do I get more involved? How do I talk to voters more? How do I be civically engaged and in, in tune? So I think seeing what happened there with, with kids who didn't even have their right to vote, um, we were, we got together this year and we were like, let's do something like small. Let's just do a couple organizer trainings. And it actually turned into this platform that we feel like, you know, we actually have tapped into the community in a different way. And in the way that I think they needed, people needed this platform to get engaged and informed. Um, so it happened organically, happened out of nowhere. We didn't, we didn't think it's going to get this big. And now we're growing and we're thinking about what do we do after November? Because again, this is not just about a presidential election. It's about, are we educating ourselves on voting rights? Yeah. Are we educating ourselves on voter suppression? And are we showing up every time there's an election? Um, I have some stats here, which I think is really important to know. You know, in the Muslim community, 80% of Muslims are eligible to vote. 80% of Muslim votes, voters express intentions to vote, but only 59% of Muslim voters actually vote. Only 59% out of the 80% why, why that is, have why, What is your understanding of the gap? I think it's fear. Of? I think, I think we've in, we have this fear of if we cast our vote and maybe the person that we cast our vote for is not elected, will that have negative repercussions? Because I think we saw that after 9-11, what happened to the Muslim American community. We saw a lot of Muslim Americans... Um, I think, who, you know, were, were looked upon differently after 9-11. Like, I had, we had to be, we had to know how to have that dialogue as Muslim American kids growing up. And I think since then, that's changed the entire stature of how we 
I think it goes back to this idea of like, just stay lay, just lay low. Right. It's almost like easier to lay low. Yeah. And I think because of that, you don't see that politically informed or active base because it's just better to put your head down and run your business and call it a day. And when we do that, they win because that's exactly yeah. what, and let, let's put aside politics for a second. Like it's not, you can vote for whoever you want. Um, mm -hmm. in, in my heart and in your heart, we can tell you who we're going to vote for, but fundamentally if citizens who have the right to vote feel that either their vote doesn't matter or that worse, that their vote will have negative repercussions to their life and livelihood, then that system is broken. Um, and when systems are broken, not everybody suffers at the same rate. And so you have to ask yourself, in the grand scheme of things, in the spirit of voting for those who can't vote for themselves, who wins if you don't vote? Hmm. Who couldn't vote? Um, people that look like me and you were not allowed in this country for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. A uh, hundred years ago, women could not vote. Black people were not considered human. Um, hmm. The list goes on. Um, the people who, the people whose lives are impacted the most by policy domestically can't vote. Mm -hmm. Talking about kids. Education and public service funding impacts them the greatest. They have no say in anything. Right. Um, are most marginalized, uh, the incarcerated, the the undocumented, um, who, again, live in fear or live in situations or systems that restrict the voicing of their opinion. If you don't want to vote for yourself, vote for them. Um, there's millions of people counting on you to vote because they died to people literally died to vote. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, and, we, and I, we've heard that so much that I think it numbs it. You know, what's been the most, you know, surprising thing in this process for me is, and not surprising, I get it. Um, you know, a lot of young people I know who are voting age don't want to vote. I think they're harder to convince than our parents because they just don't believe in our system or in our government or our structure at all. And I think we're losing a generation. I, I seriously, this is a fear of mine that we're losing out on a generation in terms of, you know, um, these bright minds need to be, you know, like be involved in the politics and, and being and civically engaged in terms of like representing us because I think they, they are very bright minds. Um, but I get the frustration and I think when we, when we, it's not like do voting and then don't, don't do anything else. Right. That's not, that's not what's in question here. It's vote. Like that's the most basic thing you can do. And then continue to go do what you do in terms of community organizing, yeah. whether that is, um, you know, direct services, whether that's mutual aid, whether, however you want to look at it, um, protesting to push, you know, the push, the push the system forward. All those things are very important, but you must vote. And, I, you know, I'm being honest with you that this is still a dialogue I'm trying to figure out um, when it comes to young voters, because they're just they're just done. Like they're, they're just so tired and exhausted that they don't even want to, like, exercise their right to vote. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a third generation. Um, there are pockets of young people who are teaching us how to march, how to protest. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. But but I think in specific communities, um, and I don't want to blame that on our parents one hundred percent, but the myth of meritocracy that you can study and earn your way to a better life mm-hmm. also impacts the way that people view voting because. If you've convinced yourself or if you've been fortunate enough to have gone to the right schools, to get the right degrees, to get the right jobs, to live in the right neighborhood, you don't need public services, right? You don't rely on public health care. You care less about basic services because it does not impact your day to day. You want to cut off the buses? Go ahead. I don't take the bus. Food stamps? Never had them, right? And and so, Mm. or worse yet, there's those people who've actually made it and then there's countless others who think that they're on their way and that them being poor is a temporary condition not to be systemically blamed but that they're on their way and the once they get there that they won't care either we see that a lot um you know in in many many communities you know uh and so like that i think is a grave potential danger that you can't study your way out of racism. Sorry. No. Um, how many stories of, you know, judges being pulled over because they're black or um, doctors during COVID being yelled at by patients and saying, don't treat me because you look us like a certain something. Actual doctors who've gone to the world's best schools are being mm. screamed at by race to say, don't touch me because I think you're going to give me the... That's the reality. Yeah. And, you know, just like COVID doesn't discriminate, racists don't actually care what your day job is. They just fundamentally view us as less than. So um, I, I, I think, you know, it just comes down to empathy and, yeah. and humanity. Um, Absolutely. If you don't, look, it's so easy to vote now. Um, actually, in California, it's really easy to vote. <laughs> I was going to say, have, with everything going on, it's becoming harder to vote have, this year, Jerry. We have, we have semi-competent <laughs> leadership. Um, <laughs> but if you can, um, you, you're, you're hearing our voice sometime in September. Um, mm. Two things you should do right now, if you haven't yet, fill out your damn census Absolutely. and vote as early as you can. Yeah. Um, if you're listening and you're close to me in L.A. County, um, ballots will go out sometime in September. And starting on October 4th in L.A. County, they're going to have these vote drop-off boxes that look like giant mailboxes or those like library return metal things that used to sit in front of. These are county-controlled, county-operated. You can set up a digital tracking system so that you know your ballots are going to get counted. Like, make a plan to vote, right? Like, I plan to set a reminder on my calendar on October 5th to go drop off our family's ballots at... I don't know the location yet, but figure out where it is and go that day, right? Um, Absolutely. And like, tell others about it. Ask them what their plan is because voting still is a very personal process, as it should be, but it's also something that is really hard to keep people accountable to mm-hmm. unless you're like holding somebody's hand to say, like, you're going to go vote with me in person, which this year is going to be a challenge to begin with. Um and do your part. Um, 
And I will say, Jerry, you know, one thing we talk about a lot um, as a group is this concept of relational organizing, because in a pandemic, you need to be calling your friends and family and at least checking on them to see if they're registered to vote. Um, and, and, and I think that conversation can go a long way that's coming from someone you love or you care about. Um, you know, I, I heard I, I read this quote the other day, which is which was something along the lines of um, if your vote didn't matter so much, they wouldn't be trying so hard to take it away from you. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, with with that in mind, we have to be talking to our family and friends at the very least and then tell them to talk to three other family and friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is how you you build off and ensure. I mean, elections are lost on the and, you know, on the margin. Um, Trayvon Martin's mar- uh, mother ran in Florida um, and she lost by 300 votes. And if you think about it, that's not very, that's not a lot at all. Yeah. Um, so we really need to be thinking about who our local leaders are, our state leaders, there's so many elections happening and we just need to encourage each other to just, you know, do our due diligence and then ensure that it becomes something that, you know, again, your family and friends talk to their family and friends and they talk to their family and friends. And that's how we're going to make a difference and really show up and ensure that we don't lose on the margins. And if you, and I know we obsess over, um, the larger, more national, uh, offices, they get more attention, mm-hmm. but it's the local people that actually shape our lives far greater than the national guys. Oh do. yeah. Um, oh yeah. It's just the way that our country is set up and whether you like it or not, it's just the way it is. Gerrymandering, local. Funding, local. Police, local. School districts, local. Um, you know, public defenders, district attorneys, local police, damn sure local. So go vote even, you know, um, I mean, don't waste the, as they say, the top of the ticket, you know, mm-hmm. um, circle something in, um, <laughs> but, but make sure that, you know, uh, cause you know, I, I think here in California, um, especially here in California, um, especially if you, you know, identify more with democratic values, you go, my vote mm-hmm. don't count. Who gives a shit? It matters because the down vote matters, right? Yeah. Your your city, your county, your you know all these things that um, the 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 props, the propositions about you know um, they're trying to roll back affirmative action here, and you know all these things that impact literally our community. And if you say like just because my one vote for president doesn't matter, which might be technically true, but you never want to leave that to chance. Like, are you really willing to risk the rest of the stuff? Um, mm-hmm. And I think. Sadly, or maybe strategically, we have to talk to our community in terms that they understand and to put actual issues in front of them to say like this will happen or this will not happen or this happened because of um, X, Y, Z. And I I will say one thing about politics, which I I think is one of the the unfortunate parts of the entire, uh, you know, voting movement, if you will, or the campaign to get people to vote. There's a lot of elitism for people who work in politics. It's a lot of elitism for people who understand policies a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, stop. You're not, you're, you're, you're shaming of other people and you're finger wagging of, you know, how could you not know? It doesn't help. Um, yeah. It will probably do the opposite and get people to feel even less confident about exercising their right to vote. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, I, yeah. I was going to say, and I think we need to, when we think about these local, you know, local leaders, 
it's the Sam, they're the Sam Cho's, right? They're the David Kim's. Like we need to elect diverse voices to represent diverse perspectives, to represent the best policy outcomes possible because America is not a monolith. <laughs> um, and no. I, and I, and, and the way we do that, even the person who's on your school board, you know, we've mm. talked about this, Jerry, on, on the side where it's like, even, even what happens in our, when, what we read in our history textbooks, right? Oh. Our school, our, our board of education has a role to play in that, right? And, and ensuring that maybe there's textbook revision. So we do have a more inclusive, you know, set of history that we can read and grow up with. And we don't even have that. These small decisions that may seem smaller and insignificant really are not. So we must do everything to empower and ensure we elect diverse voices. Everything matters. Um, <laughs> textbooks matter. Yeah. Who orders? Who writes textbooks? Who orders textbooks? And who teaches from the textbooks? Absolutely. And who gets left out of that discussion? Um, you know. Uh, you know, earlier in the year, um, great documentary came out. Uh, we were lucky to have the series producer here on the show, Asian Americans. And a lot of people were like, how come I never learned this in school? <laughs> Why do you think they didn't teach us this, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because it would empower us. It would it would get us angry. It would get us to run for office to make sure that this shit doesn't happen again. Who wins when we don't learn? Who wins when you don't vote? Again, mm-hmm. like you said, you see a lot of people like if it wasn't that important, they wouldn't be trying to take it away from you. Um, Like, and it's almost getting to that point where like, they're no longer trying to be sneaky about things. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like pulling mailboxes out of the concrete in daylight. Like, what are you going to like clean them and put them back? No. Like you might put them back November 5th and be like, oops. Right. Like, so you have to vote. And, and so, you know, um, and if you want to learn um, more about their issues, um, there's so many resources, so, so, so many resources. And um, just learn, just ask. Um, and if you don't, if and if you live in an area where you don't think your vote matters, fine, go phone bank for somebody, go text bank for somebody, go give money to somebody, go do something for somebody in a district where the guy or the woman or whoever has a chance to change the outcome of that election. Um, Absolutely. Texas is a battleground state this year. Texas. That's insane. You would have never said that even four years ago, people are like, no, 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 exactly. We, we have to, I mean, especially in, in, in the, you know, this virtual environment we're living in, we have, like, we must, there's, you know, we must get involved. We must do something. Um, and it'd be foolish for us to not do so. Yeah. Look, I, I think. Um, and, and, yeah, you know, no, Jerry, it, it's also the way we hold our leaders accountable whenever oh, yeah. they, <laughs> whenever they run. Um, if we, if we become apathetic and we're like, Oh, it's fine. There, there's, you know, this candidate office, wh- wh- whatever side, you know, we're talking about. Um, David Kim, for example, is a very good example. You know, he's, he's a ex- great example of that, right? Um, where he's running because there's there's an issue at the local level. There are many issues that are not being represented at the local level, and he's willing to push for that, right? And I think the minute, you know, we hold our leaders accountable, 
um, the people power aspect grows more. And we need to show that we care every time there's an election in order to ensure our, again, our interests are being best represented in our community. Um, that's why like the AOCs win, right? That's why the Ilhan Omars win. That's why the Rashida, Rashida's win, right? And, and why it's important um, because there's definitely work that um, these the leaders before them started to ignore and people went out and voted and changed that outcome for the future. So I think we have that power. We just need to realize it, that that vote actually counts for something more than we think. Yeah. Um, okay. We often look back in history at tumultuous times, insane times, and we go, who let this happen? Um, look up the pie charts of the last few presidential elections. It's not who voted for one and voted for the other. It's the people who didn't vote that actually decided the outcome. Yeah. And so um, it matters. And at, at this point, if you want to vote for the other guy, I don't care. But make voting a habit. Make voting okay. If you're an entrepreneur, if you own, if you if you control other people's schedules during that day, give them the time off. If you're a professor, cancel your class. Um, do something. If it's safe for you to do so, go volunteer. Go do something. America controls a disproportionate amount of world everything. So if you believe that your vote doesn't matter in a local level, well, your vote matters in a global level, and it actually impacts our families back in our home countries. It impacts people we've never met. If you believe that wars are unjust, then how many lives could have been saved if certain people didn't start certain wars? Please vote. I think it matters you know, again, I don't want to be later with the point, but, um, <laughs> register, um, yeah. volunteer, you know, money's tight for everybody. Um, unless you work for a tech company, if you work for a tech company, please donate more than you otherwise would. Um, and then figure out what kind of legacy you want to leave for your children. Our, our parents did an amazing job to go from literal survival As we mentioned earlier, the Rajan family went from being a janitor to an Ivy League grad in one generation. Where can we go from here? Traditionally, there's not much room to go up higher than where you are now. <laughs> but look at it at a different angle. What kind of legacy and what kind of impact can we leave on the world so that not only will our grandparents be proud of their offspring, but that our grandchildren will be proud of us for the world that we left for them. Uh, Nosheen, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, it's East Coast time. Uh, <laughs> it's late. It's dark here even, so it's probably even uh, darker over there, or maybe dark is dark. I don't know. Um, but we do want to end the show in the same way that we end all of our shows, uh, which is in the form of the Dear Asian Americans love letter. Mm. And so... Share with the audience whatever it is in your whatever is in your heart, 
that you want to share. Perhaps it is a younger version of Nasheen somewhere sitting, listening to this, or perhaps it's a friend of ours. Or perhaps it's somebody else who um, may not be too sure that their vote matters or that they have given up hope on in the system mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. Or maybe by chance, it is somebody in our parents' demographic that might be listening. Um, but if you would, uh, please help us finish out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, in honor of John Lewis, let's make some good trouble. Whatever that may look like, wherever that may look like, and whoever with that may look like. I know we're not used to making good trouble in Asian communities. We're taught to not be troublesome, but we must, we must, we must activate our communities in every way possible to show up to the polls, not maybe to the polls, but acquire the mail-in ballot, but show up, right? And, and, And whatever that looks like for you. And we need to stop acting like, we need, to be, we need to start acting like we're the majority we're about to become, right? And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, in 2050, um, by, by 2040, actually, Muslims will become the nation's second largest religious group uh, per pure research. Asian Americans are the fastest growing demographic of eligible voters compared to other major races and ethnicities, pure, pure research again. So with that in mind, if these are the predictions, we must manifest them and we must show up and create good trouble. I love the fact that you live cited your research because (laughs) there's skeptics out there saying, says who? You say (laughs) pure research. (laughs) Sounds already like a, uh, a highly educated um, oh, you're too kind. Yeah, you, you're, you're getting ready to do your, your master's thesis. Um, <laughs> if you want to learn more about the work of Ismailis Rise Up, you can visit them on Instagram at Ismailis Rise Up. They're also on Facebook and on YouTube. A ton of content, really, really engaging, fun content out there. Um, that's also how you can get in touch with Nosheen. Uh, We'll put all the links to where you can find her and where you can learn more about the organization in the show notes or in the description of the Facebook and the Instagram post. If you found this that way, Uh, please do support them. Uh, Please do support um, other organizations that are doing so much good work right now. Um, Though we'll release this later, we're recording this uh, during the 2020 Census Asian Week of Action, and we're doing everything that we can uh, to try to get people Uh, to fill out the census. Um, People are trying to even shorten the census time period um, using bogus reasons. And uh, who who are the most hard to count? Our people. And if you cut it short, um, we we miss out on the traditional tail end of activity and activism that helps us, um, you know, catch up. So do what you can. Um, If not for you, do it for your grandparents, do it for your grandchildren. If you don't have them, go make them. Um, just kidding. Don't go make children, um, unless you're ready to, but do it for other people who can't vote for themselves and recognize that we've made so much progress in one generation of our parents coming here and where we are. Be proud of that. Be absolutely proud of that. No shame in what we've achieved. 
then think about how you're going to pay it forward by leaving the right legacy for our children and beyond. So, uh, Noshin, thank you so much. Uh, another big shout out to uh, Port Commissioner Sam Cho. Um, <laughs> we love you, Sam. <laughs> we love you, Sam. It's always, you know, if I ever get stuck at the Seattle airport for any reason, I'll be like, call Sam. <laughs> um, I know a guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we love you, brother, all, for all that you do um, for your community and, and for our community as well. And then not only representing us in the right way, but also now using your platform to bring attention and donation dollars and activism uh, to other candidates from our community that you truly believe in. Um, we, we don't have much time, but uh, do what you can to help other candidates get in. Um, and even sharing something on Facebook or Instagram could help get that candidate exposure to your own friend circle that they might otherwise not. So it costs nothing, folks. Um, and I know we're all Instagram a lot because we ain't going nowhere. Um, but Noshin, good luck to you in New Jersey. Thank you, Jay. Um, Thank you for everything. Make 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 your make your, make your parents proud. Uh, <laughs> go 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 get that PhD as go soon as you're done. Live out their dreams. <laughs> yeah, go go live out their dreams, and I, you know, and and it does. Um, and 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 I and I say this with um, no, knowing that you will. Um, but it's far more important what you do with the privilege and what you do with the access and the degrees and the um, the platforms on which you'll be able to speak on because of the degrees that you have and because of the network that you've built. Um, it's it's RNC week. We see people that look like us spewing nonsense from a podium because who knows why. Um, a Vietnamese refugee is the new head of ICE. Like It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Representation matters, but not all representation should matter. Um, so I know that you will do right by us, and I know that you will go out there and, and and do what's right by the people and to continue to further the voice, not just for the Ismaili American community, um, but for, for all of us. And at the very, very basic uh, core human principle that we are all human beings and that we're only here because of the generosity and the service of other human beings, and we actually have that right and that obligation to leave it forward for others. So, Nosheen, thank you again. Best of luck thank in school. Uh, foremost, be he- be safe and be healthy. And uh, we'll you see you well. soon. Take care, Jerry. Thank you for everything. You're wonderful. Thanks again for tuning in. That was a really, really amazing conversation. Uh, another reminder, uh, we still got time to fill out your census. Make sure that you're registered to vote. Some states have already opened the request time for mail-in ballots. So make sure you get those. And make a plan to vote, uh, an actual physical plan with a timeline. Uh, Share it with your friends and family. Uh, Let's keep each other accountable. We now just have uh, just under two months until the election happens on November 3rd. And it is September 11th. And so before we sign off, I just want us to continue to reflect on what it means to be an American, um, in particular, what it means to be an Asian American. here in the States, what that experience has meant for us, uh, reflect on where were you on September 11th? What sort of resolve did you have? Um, to be honest, I think we have a very uh, different memory of what happened on September 11th in terms of the unity of Americans and how we came together to fight against the common enemy. And I think sometimes we often forget that we actually discriminated and we stood by while hate crimes and um, other atrocious things were being done. 
to our own friends um, or other American friends of Muslim descent and of South Asian descent uh, because racist can't tell us apart. Um, and not to say that we need to uh, focus on the negative aspects of everything, but let's make a commitment as we are in an extremely divided time right now with the elections coming up to treat each other with respect, um, to fight hate, to fight racism, and to fight discrimination on all levels, um, not just for those within our own community, but across the board. You have to stand up for somebody and you have to speak up for everybody. So um, whatever you're doing, I hope that you have uh, taken some time to reflect on today, what it means, what happened 19 years ago, and what can happen here in about seven weeks going forward and to make sure that we build a country, that we support the people who want to make our country as diverse, as equitable, and as just and as inclusive as we possibly can. Thanks again so much uh, for tuning in. Uh, we encourage you to write to us if you want to share your thoughts or your questions or your uh, nominations to us. You can hit us up on Instagram at our inbox at the Asian Americans or send us an email to hello at theoriginamericans.com. Like us, follow us. If you love us, uh, rate the show, give us a review, and share with us, share the show with a friend. I would really, really be appreciative of that. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Signing off on episode 74 of The Aries Americans. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. And please be healthy, safe, and happy.